text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask by the power of your spirit that you would open up your word to us. Lord, we ask more than that you would open up the meaning of it to us, but that you would lay it upon our hearts, that we would be changed by it, that we would live in accordance with it, and that by your word we might be seen to be more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning you have noticed we are not in the book of Romans. We're taking a short break about halfway through the book of Romans for a new short series. As we finished Romans chapter 9, we saw Paul's passion for the lost. And then we saw Paul lay out for us the doctrine of election to teach us to have reliance upon God for salvation. And so now, using that as a jumping-off point, we are going to start and look 
and see what it means to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. To have a heart for the lost and to bring a message to the lost. And so this morning we start this first in a four-sermon series on being ambassadors for Christ with the passage that deals with that phrase directly, 2 Corinthians 5. And so what I would like us to see in this text this morning are three things. I trust that they'll be easier to remember than normal because they're alliterative. First, we will see the problem, that is man's problem. Secondly, we will see the provision, that is God's provision for man's problem. And then third, we will see the proclamation, the proclamation that is given to us by the Lord of his provision for the problem. The problem, the provision, the proclamation. So as we start first with the problem of man, we see that this problem is in the background and it is actually the starting point for our passage The problem for man, first and foremost, is alienation from God. Now, it is important for us to look at this passage in this fashion because this is the way we need to come to the Bible in general. That is, not every passage mentions every teaching of the Bible. If it did, we would never be able to even carry around our Bibles. And so, we see this passage in the light of other scriptural truth. The Bible is one book that tells a unified story. And so if we look at this passage, the big idea is that Paul is trying to get across is that we can be reconciled to God and that God has given a ministry of reconciliation. So the first thing we must do is to think about why reconciliation is important. Why is reconciliation necessary? And so to do that, we have to take one logical step back. Because if reconciliation were not needed, Paul would not be so forceful about it in this passage. And what we understand as we take a logical step back is that reconciliation presupposes alienation. What that means is, is that you don't bring together two people who aren't at odds. You don't need to reconcile people who are already together. Think of it this way. Have you ever had a close friend? You know, the kind of friend that they can start a sentence and you can finish it. You don't have to ask, where do you want to go to eat? You always want to go to the same place together. You like the same movies, you read the same books, you you enjoy spending time together. When something wonderful happens in your life, they're the first person you talk to to share the news with them. When a tragedy strikes you, they're the first person you go to for encouragement and comfort. Now imagine you're with this friend and you're in public and you're talking and, and smiling and laughing and having a great time and someone comes up to you and says... I just felt compelled to come here and talk to you two. Well, why? Well, it seems obvious to me that you two are in need of reconciliation. You're laughing and you're smiling and that just doesn't seem right to me. You must be at odds with one another. Now, if that happened, you would look at this person and say, 
What planet did you fly in from? This is not how this works. I want you to take that kind of common sense and bring it to the text. Because if Paul's talking about reconciliation, it has to presuppose a previous alienation. There's a reason why Paul wants people to be reconciled to God. It's because their state is alienation from God. And so Paul does this, presuming our alienation in the text. He says it was true of himself in verse 18. He says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, when you hear Paul say us, you have to remember who's included in the us. It's Paul. So what Paul is saying is, I was alienated from God. Now, that's a big step because Paul lived his entire life before he met Jesus Christ thinking that he was the biggest servant of God, that God owed him a favor, that he had done all the work that God would have wanted from him. And what Paul says is, It doesn't really depend on your subjective state of mind. It is rather an objective reality of whether you are alienated from God. Because if you are sitting here this morning and you think, well, I'm okay with God. I don't have any complaints. That's not enough. It's not your subjective state of mind. Paul went beyond you. He gave up his entirety of his life to doing what he thought was service for God. And when he met Jesus Christ, he realized that he had been mistaken. Now it's also true, you'll see in verse 19, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. Now this word here for world is the Greek word for the entirety of the universe, for the entire structure of all creation. It's a Greek word that you know because of its connotations in English. It is the cosmos. We get cosmology from this. So what Paul is saying here is the entirety of the created universe was alienated from God in the sin of Adam. And God is reconciling not just Paul, not just individuals, but all of creation to himself. How? In Christ. But Paul says something perhaps even more direct in verse 20. He says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you. On behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So it's not just other people like Paul. It's not just the reality of existence in all of its vastness. It is you. You are alienated from God when you are born. You are born in sin. And you commit sin. And you, unless the Lord bring you to himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in a state of alienation from God. Paul says you need to be reconciled with God. Now this condition of alienation from God is presumed by Paul and the Bible, and we must understand this. Before we can think rightly about Jesus Christ and what he has done, we must be convinced of our alienation from God. We must be convinced not only of our own alienation from God, but of others' alienation from God. We must understand that this is something that Paul is calling us to. Now, we don't need to import this idea from philosophy. We don't even need to have our own personal experience of alienation in view, because it is the central and fundamental theme of the Bible. It starts in Genesis 3. 
when Adam and Eve first sinned. And they were alienated from God. They were thrust out of the Garden of Eden and separated from God. Genesis 3 tells us that God drove them out of the Garden. And the Bible tells us over and over again how sinful men are separated from God. They are so wicked and rebellious that God destroys the entirety of the earth with a flood except eight souls. And then it's not as if from that point things improve. Because shortly thereafter, the people of the earth begin to build a tower to reach up to heaven to be like God. As a matter of fact, the entirety of the story of the people of Israel is one of them abandoning God and seeking after idols and falsehoods. The story of the Bible is how man is isolated and alienated from God. And then, when God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ, they rejected him. They cried out, crucify him. And the Gentiles at that time were no better. They ignored Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with him. And you and I are no different from these people. Now you might think, well, pastor, I wouldn't have done what Adam did. I could see the problem here. And I wouldn't have rebelled like Israel did. And surely if Jesus were here right now, I wouldn't reject him. But the truth is, as human beings born in sin, we are no better than these people in the Bible. As a matter of fact, we too are alienated from God. The Bible describes not only others, it describes you and your problem. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. You see, the problem is we are alienated from God. But the problem is more than that. Alienation from God is bad enough. To be separated from your creator, from the one who is the source of all blessedness and good in the world. Now, stop for a minute and think about that. The logical end of alienation from God is hell. It's being separated from God forever. It is hearing from God, depart from me. It's being in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where there is no relief. Where there is no good. Now that is bad. But perhaps what is worse is to know our problem and to also know that we cannot solve it. We are alienated from God, but we cannot bring ourselves to Him. And we see this generally in the passage before us this morning. What do we notice in our passage about Paul's talk of reconciliation? Who is doing the reconciling? Do you see it here? It is not up to man to make the first step. It is not man 
who comes to God. It is God who comes to man. God is the initiator. He is the reconciler. Now we'll look at this in more detail in a moment, but look with me for a moment at verse 18 through 20. Over and over again, God is the one acting. He is the one reaching out. He is the subject of all of these verbs. He is reconciling. He is giving. He is entrusting. He is making his appeal. It is God who is the initiator. Now, why is this the case? I think first it tells us something about the nature of God that he initiates. But for this time, I'd like us to focus for a moment on what it tells us about ourselves. You see, the Bible is clear that not only are we alienated from God, but we are unable to come to him. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now notice, Paul doesn't say we're sick. He doesn't say that we're uneducated. He doesn't say that we are lazy. He says we are dead. And that is the best possible description of inability that you can make. Because we all know that the dead are unable completely. They are beyond any help. There is no natural return from that position of being dead. That's Paul's way of describing in a visible fashion what he says about sinners in Romans chapter 3, that there is no one who seeks after God. Why do they not seek after God? Because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. Our problem is not only that we are alienated from God, but that we can do nothing to solve that alienation. This is the most significant problem. That's why Paul says in verse 10 and verse 11 of chapter 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our problem is that we are alienated from God unable to come to him, and yet still under judgment. But the good news is, not only do we know our problem, God does also. God knows we are alienated from him. He knows we have rebelled against him. He knows that we are lost and without hope. And he knows we are incapable of coming back to him. God is not waiting for us to make things right. He doesn't insist on us taking the first step. Have you ever had that kind of fight with someone? A kind of a real knockdown, drag out fight. In which after it's over, you say to yourself, they're going to have to come to me and apologize. There is no way I'm going to them. I'll listen, but it's up to them. they got to take the first step. I don't care if it takes a day. I don't care if it takes a week. It could take ten years for all I care. they got to come to me. Have you ever experienced that? Now, I want you to know that God has every right to take that position. Because the reason that there's alienation from God is not because of anything God's done. It's because of everything we've done. So God would be perfectly just to say to us, 
I'm just going to stand here, and if you really want to have a relationship with me, you get your act together and come see me. God would be perfectly just to do this. But instead, God has made provision for the world. Now, first, Paul shows us that God is the author of this provision. And then he shows us what God has done in this provision. So let's look first at God as the author of his provision for the world. Paul starts by describing the miraculous work of salvation in the life of a sinner. That is, of reconciliation. He does this in verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What Paul says here is, we don't even think about others according to the flesh. Not in natural or ordinary terms. Why not? Because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is no longer true anymore. There has been a transformation. This is not an improvement. This is not a reformation of character. No, it is an entirely new remaking of a person. Paul says the new has come. Now, how does that happen? It happens, Paul says, in Christ. And look at how one comes to be in Christ, to become a new creation. Look at the beginning of verse 18. All this is from God. Could Paul be any clearer? It's not some of it. It's not the starting point. It's not the tipping point. All of it comes from God. It's God who's doing the reconciling in verse 18. God who gave in verse 18. God who entrusted his message in verse 19. God who doesn't count trespasses in verse 19. God who makes his appeal in verse 20. It is God who does this from first to last. God alone takes the initiative and he makes provision for sinners. Now there is nothing here or in anywhere in the Bible for that matter of God telling us to make the first step. Nothing about God waiting for us to show we're worthy of reconciliation. No, in fact it's the exact opposite. We are condemned We are in a state of alienation, a state of inability, and God knows we are not worthy. And he acts anyway. And what has God done? What is this provision that God has performed? God has reconciled us to himself. Paul makes this clear in verse 18. Now this idea of reconciliation means to change or to exchange. That is, God has exchanged hostility for friendship and love. He has ended the hatred or the enmity that existed. How can God end that hostility? How does he resolve that alienation? 
How does he take away the barrier that rebellion has built between us and God? He does it, Paul says, in Christ. It is through the work of Jesus Christ that God brings about reconciliation. Now, this is critically important for us because it is God's way of reconciliation and because it's not the way that we would think of. I think perhaps we would suggest that God just forget about our sin. Just pretend it never happened and let's get along and move forward. Have you ever had that kind of a conflict with someone? You've had a conflict and they look at you and they say, well, let's just pretend that never happened. Let's just act as if it's in the past and move on. Now, if you've had that happen, you know how impossible it is to be reconciled on those terms. You can't just pretend a conflict didn't happen. You can't just ignore it. No, you need to resolve it. You need to truly put it behind you. You don't make up a fiction. You have to resolve it. Another way that we might think of resolving this is to tell God to just wink at our sin, as it were. In other words, just act like our sin isn't all that bad, God. Don't worry about it so much. Just kind of give it light treatment. The problem is God can't do that because he is just and he is righteous. So instead, God has initiated the work of reconciliation with sinners through the work of Jesus. Do you see how Paul makes this clear? He says that this work of reconciliation is through Christ. It is in Christ. And most clearly in verse 21, he says, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin. Jesus is at the center of our reconciliation with God. And that tells us all that we need to know about God. All that we need to know about Jesus. You cannot separate reconciliation from the horror of the cross. The only way that you can know God, the only way that you can say, my God, is with Jesus Christ saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This reconciliation comes at a cost, an incredible cost. The cost of the blood of the Son of God himself. We must know that our alienation from God is real and that it can only be resolved at incredible cost. And we must know that God was not only willing to pay that cost, but that he did. God has made provision for reconciliation in Christ. Now, God's provision goes beyond providing reconciliation. It would have been perfectly appropriate for God to have said to us, now, I've made my provision. Now, you need to find it. You need to come and get it. He could have put all the burden on us. Because, after all, The more valuable something is, 
the greater the burden on us to get it. We see this, for example, in restaurants that everyone wants to go to. In order for you to sit and eat, you need to make a reservation. You need to reserve your time there. And actually, some of the best, the most elite restaurants don't even advertise where they are. You have to find out where they are to go eat at them. Think about the latest gadgets. You would think a company would want to sell as many gadgets as possible and make them as widely available as possible. But every time a new phone or a new gadget comes out, what do they do? They limit the number they sell and they make you line up overnight for them. (coughs) Another example that I can think of will date me. The young people won't understand this. But everyone my age and above will remember this vividly. I remember being a teenager, and my sister, who was younger than me, wanted for Christmas the latest craze. It was called a Cabbage Patch doll. Now, you young people, you can go Google this when you go home, and you're going to say to yourself, why would anybody even want a Cabbage Patch doll? (laughs) Let alone fight over them. And what happened was they were impossible to get. You'd go into a store and they would be out. You'd go to a second store and they would be out. And what would happen is you would hear a rumor that a certain store had some. And a mob would descend on the store. We know you've got Cabbage Patch dolls here. Bring them out. We want to buy them. And the poor store clerks would say something like, we don't have any. Please, leave me alone. No, we know you're hiding them. You're just trying to get them for yourself. We know they're here somewhere. People would start tearing apart the store. It was insane. But, you see, when things are valuable, normally people will go crazy to go out of their way to obtain them. But that's not how God works. Do you see the inseparable nature of God's provision in Christ and his provision in the ministry of reconciliation here in verse 18? All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God not only did what was necessary to reconcile sinners to himself. He reaches out to sinners to let them know it's been done. And the word here, ministry, for ministry of reconciliation, is an interesting word. At its root, it has the concept of service. It means to aid or to support. That is, God is serving sinners in his reconciliation. He is bringing reconciliation to them, not demanding that they come to him all ready and prepared. No, he brings his reconciliation to them. Because God knows that left to ourselves, we will not come to him. We will not receive his gift. We just saw that when we talked about our inability. Now think about this. God would have been just if he had provided reconciliation in Jesus and made us come to him seeking it. He could have put all the burden on us to see our need, to find his provision and to receive it from him. But instead, God has instituted this ministry 
God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, Paul tells us in verse 19. And he does this in a very specific way. Now notice, in verse 18, Paul says that God is reconciling the world to himself. And then in verse 19, he begins with the words, that is. Now, we might say this means just in this way, or in other words. Verse 19 is an explanation of verse 18. That is, the way in which God is doing this reconciliation is through the ministry of reconciliation. God has established a ministry of reconciliation through us. That is, through those who are in Christ. It is a replicating function. Once God has reconciled with you, you become a part of His ministry of reconciliation. Look further at verse 19. Paul says that we are entrusted with His message. And then again in verse 20, he says that we are ambassadors, ones who make God's appeal. God has chosen in his infinite wisdom to work through sinners saved by grace. So what is it then that God has committed to sinners in this ministry of reconciliation? Paul describes it clearly in verse 20. It is the proclamation of the gospel to the lost. In verse 20, Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are the ones through whom God makes his appeal. And this tells us what the central fact of the ministry of reconciliation is. That is, that it is a message. God is announcing his reconciliation to the world. He has a message for sinners. And at the same time, it tells us that we have been given the privilege of announcing this message of reconciliation. Now the message is critical. God's word tells us that no one will be saved without hearing the word of reconciliation. Paul makes this point in Romans 10. He says, how will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You see, the proclamation is not the reason or the ground of salvation. But it is the method designed by God for salvation. And that method has been entrusted with you, Christian. If you believe in Jesus Christ, and if you know the forgiveness of sins, you have been entrusted with a great privilege. Yours is to declare the message that God in Christ is reconciling sinners to himself. Do you see what a great blessing you've been given? God could have given this message, this ministry, to the angels. Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7 that the law of Moses was given mediated by angels. And the law is holy and righteous and good. But how much greater is the word of reconciliation than the word of the law? For the law pronounces judgment and wrath on sin. 
But the word of reconciliation announces peace and mercy and grace. Have you recently thought about this great privilege? If you have, have you put it into action? We all love to be given privileges. Children love, it never ceases to amaze me when we have a vacation Bible school. And at the beginning of the day when the children walk in and sit in their class assigned seats, one child gets to bring in the flag for the class. And every child wants that privilege. No one says, oh, the flag is heavy, I don't want to touch it. No one says, oh, I'd rather be in the back. No, they say, oh, give me the flag, give me the flag. I want it, because it's a privilege. Adults are honored to be given the privilege of speaking before others, or of being a part of something important. Do you see this great privilege that God has given you? There is only one way to be reconciled with God. Paul tells us this. It is through Christ, in Christ. And we have been given the privilege of bringing Christ to others. <coughs> we have been given the privilege of telling them the way of reconciliation so that they might be reconciled to God, so that God's kingdom would expand, and so that God would be glorified in the redemption of sinners. Are you ready to be a part of that ministry of reconciliation? There's a final point that we must make briefly. And that is that there is a responsibility that comes with this privilege of proclamation. First, because it is a ministry of God the initiator, we must initiate. Now, by that, I don't mean that every conversation that you have from now on needs to be a gospel plea. No. You have other responsibilities as well before God. God has given you responsibilities to your spouse, to your family, to your workplace. You cannot shirk them by saying, it was for the gospel that I did this. Paul puts it this way in another place. If one is not willing to work, he should not eat. Now why does Paul say this? I think at least in this context, he means you cannot make yourself a lazy burden on other people and claim you're doing it for Jesus. Paul will have none of that. He did not shirk his own work as he brought the gospel and planted churches. I have to tell you that one of the worst things a pastor can be is a lazy pastor. In the same way, one of the worst things an evangelist can be is a lazy person. People will not pay attention to you. They will not take you seriously because they will say, how can you tell me what I must do when you will not even take care of your own responsibilities? But at the same time, we must be the ones to initiate with others. If someone is lost, he doesn't know he's lost. He doesn't know how to come to God. Do you remember the doctrine of total depravity? Do you remember the doctrine of election? No one seeks after God. You did not choose God. God chose you, he says in his word. 
And what that means is, is that God is the one who reaches out to sinners, not the other way around. And how God reaches out is through you. You are his hands. You are his feet. You are his mouth. You are his voice. You are his ministers of reconciliation. That means it is not enough for us to say our church is open. We're here. We don't stop anyone from coming in. Y'all just come. We're here. We're not moving. You can find us. No, it means we must go out into the community and to find sinners who do not want to come to church, who do not know how to find the Savior, people who do not know Jesus, but whom we can tell about Jesus. Paul also says that we are ambassadors, and that is an important word. It means that we carry God's message, not ours. We do not get to decide what to tell the lost. God does. This is the great tragedy of the modern church. It wants to decide what the message is. The message of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, bleeding and dying for sinners, is being replaced by notions of social justice, of wealth, health, and prosperity. We must never interject ourselves into the ministry of reconciliation. That is one reason why you will never hear politics from this pulpit. Not that I don't have a position on taxes or on the environment, but the ministry of reconciliation is not the place to spend time on such things. We have immortal things, matters of eternal life and death before us. We dare not change the message of God. In conclusion, God tells us in His Word that there is a problem with people. A deep and fatal problem with all people. A problem that no one can resolve by himself. But He also tells us that He has made a resolution to this problem. Sinners are alienated from God, but God in Christ has reconciled sinners to himself. And God has committed this word of reconciliation to his people, to you and to me. When you come to Jesus, you do not get to decide what your occupation in the kingdom of God is. You are assigned it. And each and every one of you has been assigned the most glorious occupation you could ever have. You are ambassadors for Christ. You have the privilege and the responsibility of proclaiming to the world the glories of King Jesus. Let's pray.